This is To Be Fair N.I. The Pills Project podcast celebrating the activists and allies using the law to change lives. In each episode, we'll give you a seat at the Pills table and bring you into our public interest world to give you a sense of the work that we're doing on a daily basis in Northern Ireland. Welcome back to To Be Fair NI. I'm your host, Emma Cassidy, and this is the second in our series of episodes where we take a closer look at three of the critical issues that the Pills Project have prioritised in our work over the past year. Following on from our conversation all about the human rights infrastructure, we're looking at a topic that affects every single human, plant and animal on this planet climate justice and as an organisation already deeply committed to improving access to justice pills were quite deliberate in making climate justice one of our stated priorities because climate justice as a concept recognises that the world not only needs to become an environmentally healthier place it needs to be a fundamentally fairer one as well. Now, we didn't invent the term, of course, but here are a few of the definitions and writings on climate justice that we as a team like to bear in mind as we do our work. Our NGO members, Friends of the Earth, describe climate justice as the recognition that the climate crisis is a social and political problem as well as an environmental one. The Indian activist Dishi Ravi has called it intersectional equity. In Northern Ireland, our own Climate Act recognises that a just transition should advance several objectives, including the elimination of gender inequality. The activist and author Michaela Loach has spoken about how climate justice reminds us that, quote, what we're fighting for is not just one siloed liberation, it's the liberation of all of us. Climate justice offers us a pathway to a world without misogyny, homophobia, racism, classism, transphobia, a world where all of us are free. And this is important because, as the Nepalese anthropologist Tunga Rai has pointed out, the specific knowledge systems and expertise of Indigenous communities is often still marginalised in scientific publications and in organising around climate. So the importance of taking a truly intersectional approach to climate action cannot be understated because all of us need to do better, really, to be perfectly honest. Which leads us to the question, how are pills using the resources, the influence and the expertise that we have to make the world a fairer and a healthier place? Well, stay tuned because this is the episode that maps out the current context that place protectors are organising in. It gives concrete examples of the work that PILS is doing, both with the NGO and legal communities. And we have some really important dates for your diary and ways for you to get involved as well. So that's a lot to get through. <laughs> Let's dive into the conversation that Maria, Kate, Hilary and I had earlier this week. This is To Be Fair NI on climate justice. We hope you enjoy. As I said, this is our second thematic episode and we are just going to dive straight into the conversation on the Pills Project and our work on climate justice, one of the priority areas that we mentioned in our last episode. 
I think we can take the fact that our climate has changed and is changing as a given. Even a few weeks ago, it was confirmed that 2023 was the hottest year on record. But if you are tuning in expecting a rigorous scientific analysis for that, this is not the podcast for you. This episode is essentially about providing a bit of hope and about how we as a project and the people that we work with are creating our own pockets of hope in our own areas of expertise and connecting those all together to hopefully create something bigger. Actually, just this morning, um, I saw that the UN Special Rapporteur on Environmental Defenders has issued their end of mission report on their recent visit to the UK. And you can imagine, not terribly glowing. I know that that is something that we're probably going to talk about during this episode. There's an awful lot of framing, I think, that goes on when you talk about this. The fact that people who are now trying to protect place and protect the planet are often framed as disruptors. Um, instead of the people who are actually causing active climate harm and environmental damage. And I think for us, one of the things that when we started to talk about this as a priority area of work was that often in legal arenas, it, it can be seen as the fact that environmental law is distinct often from discussions around human rights law and, and trying to to get those to connect. Um, the European Convention on Human Rights doesn't mention the word environment. Hilary, I know that that was something that you looked at before Climate Crack last year. I don't know if there's anything else that you want to say to sort of frame that discussion a little bit more or give us anything that we need to, I suppose, place our work in a wider context. Yeah, so I think that when we're talking about human rights in the environment, it's difficult because it really requires lawyers to be creative in the strategies that they're using because often there isn't legislation that's been designed specifically to address those issues. So when we're looking at human rights, the ECHR itself is anthropocentric, to use a big word, um, but it's all based around people. It's not based around the environment. So I think the drafters weren't necessarily thinking that these rights would be used in environmental litigation. But I guess the situation we're in is that it's one of the tools at our disposal that lawyers are using. And we're seeing some success, but the difficulty is that it always has to be based around the individual and the right that's claimed. So again, you're focusing on right to life, right to private and family life. And so the impact on the environment has to connect with the core of that right and it's focusing on the harm caused to the individual rather than the harm caused to the environment. And so in terms of next steps, there is a movement among environmental lawyers and activists to see rights of nature recognized and to have legislation that specifically addresses that. So there is a draft treaty that exists, the Global Pact for Environment, which has nature-centered rights and the idea is that then someone could bring action on behalf of the lake. These are the lake's best interests. And so that's something that I think is gaining traction, certainly among activists and lawyers who are focused on the environment. 
And I think it's just a matter of getting more people behind that. But we have seen some positive movements. So in 2022, in July, we saw the um, United Nations General Assembly pass a recognition of a right to live in a healthy environment. And so that's one of the first steps that we've seen in terms of a recognition of the rights of nature to some extent. But again, it is the right to live in a healthy environment. So it's still centered around individuals. So that, I suppose, is the, the legal context that, that we're working in. And Kate, in the last episode, when we were talking about the human rights infrastructure, one of the things that you were talking about was the context that place protectors and environmental activists are working in currently in Northern Ireland, across the UK, across Europe. We've seen attempts to crack down on the right to protest, um, vilifying protesters and, and environmental protectors in the media and I just wondered to give a bit of context on that if there was anything that you wanted to share either from Pills's work over the last year with local climate organisers or any reflections from your own experience with um, the Green Party in Northern Ireland. What I'd probably go back to is what you mentioned at the beginning. Michael Forst, the UN Special Rapporteur, has heavily criticised the UK government's approach, but I think we can safely say it's a GB approach, it isn't, and even arguably an English approach to cracking down on protests, cracking down on environmental defenders. And it reflects, it almost reflects what you're talking about, the anthropocentric approach. Easy for Hillary to say, not so much <laughs> for me to say. Anthropocentric approach of the rights framework. We've got a legal framework that is similar it protects property rights. That's what our legal framework is there to do, private property rights. And the environment is not seen as something that can be capable of having rights. It's a resource. It's a resource to be exploited. You know, we see that with, with the rights that are being elevated at Loch Ness. It's not about pollution. It's not about the damage to our water. It's about the rights of those who own the, the sand banks, the sand dredgers, the commercial rights that flow out of all of that and the fact that we have no way of controlling that then when you combine it with what we're seeing in terms of the so-called culture wars and environmental activism being seen as brought into that protecting the environment and addressing the climate crisis and climate chaos that we're facing had become very mainstream but there is a very active attempt now to de-mainstream it to make it look like it's on the fringes, to make people look like they're crazy and therefore disruptors and therefore a threat and therefore a threat to our systems and a threat to our democracy. And that simply isn't true. They're upholding the basic terms of democracy. And whilst we're not directly affected by it all in Northern Ireland in terms of the crackdowns on protests, which are across the board, it's not, it's not just directed at environmental defenders, but we can't take it for granted that just because these laws don't apply here, that they won't affect us. If we look at how in inner London County Court, when you had environmental defenders being brought up on charges for, for breaching criminal law and protesting, they were not allowed in that context to bring in the fact that they were protesting issues around climate. The inner London County Court, the judges said, we're not here to listen to that. It's not relevant. And that, in our law, is probably perfectly correct. 
they're there to be sentenced for did they or did they not break this particular law. And there's no reason why that can't happen here in the same way as we saw over COVID with the Black Lives Matters protests, policing policy shifts. One of the arguments around the new law that was being brought in in England was it wasn't really needed. The police have the powers, it's all there. Policy shifts can change things rapidly. So we can't take it for granted that just because it isn't happening now, it isn't going to happen in the future. So I think it's something that, that we need to be very cautious of because it has a chilling effect on people, the possibility of a criminal record will stop people in their, in their tracks. It's important to start off with that context, both from the legal point of view and how the conversation is being driven, as you say, in GB, but we have to be aware that that can also start to filter in, particularly that kind of unhelpful framing. But to bring it back to why pills are getting involved, Maria, when we started to, I suppose, talk publicly about this during Pro Bono Week last year, your blog was writing about how, in spite of the restrictions that there are in the way our current legal system is set up, that you weren't ready to give up on the law as a tool and a potential tool for change. I think the word radical is sort of thrown around as a bit of a, a way to, to scare people away maybe from getting involved in this type of legal work and it actually makes perfect sense for more lawyers to be getting involved in this and using their skills that they already have to get involved in climate work. So just wanted to give you a bit of space to say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so from the perspective of pills getting more involved in the climate justice space, um, I think it has been a big step for this organisation, as it is for any lawyer who's thinking about going into this area. It is technical, it is complicated, and it gets more daunting by the day, as we've heard just you know about the crackdown on protests, new laws being introduced all the time to make this space even more complicated than it already is. So it is scary, I get it. And I like to think of it a little bit like my transition from practicing in civil litigation and moving into asylum and immigration, which I did after 12 years of practice. And at that time, I knew deep down that I really wanted to do something about, at that time, what was happening in the Mediterranean. It just was horrific um, around 2015. And I thought, well, you know, what, what can I do? Uh, what have I done to get me to a point where I might be able to contribute to this problem in a hopefully helpful way? So I sat down, I started looking at what was happening in the local area. I started going to the meetings. I started going to the events where people who did know about it were talking about it. I just made it part and parcel of my sort of daily interests, reading about things and then deciding, yes, I do want to get more involved. So I look for courses and ultimately then decided to do a master's in human rights law. I don't think anybody has to do a master's um, in environmental law to become involved because there are courses available and there will be more courses available. We'll hear more about that later from um, Hillary. <laughs> um, but it is, even though it's scary, it is so doable. Um, it is about using the community that is already there, that are working on and that is, is crying out for more help. It is all hands on deck time. Um, and even though I think our legal system here isn't as developed in the sense of case law, it is about that being creative thing that Hillary talked about, about using 
what we know of the law and applying it to this problem and trying to find solutions. And sometimes we sit in a room with other um, environmental organisations and other lawyers who are interested in, and we literally bat about ideas as to how you might tackle a particular issue. It goes round in circles, it goes up, down, around, in and out. And sometimes we don't come to a conclusion or any solution, but we're having the conversations and it's continually thinking about it, looking at what's happening in the European Court of Human Rights, for example, thinking, is there anything here? Looking at our new climate um, legislation, seeing where is there a problem? Where is the law? How do we try and get those two to meet in the middle? It's not that we're necessarily going to find, oh, here's the very clear cut solution. Tick, that's done, we move on. It's yeah. more of a collaborative, creative conversation. Yes, exactly. And I think that lots of lawyers who are maybe working in family law or corporate and they think well this is my area um, but it's realizing all of the things they do in their daily practice looking at documents that would be of massive assistance to maybe a community organization that has sparked up around uh, you know particular application for you know oil drilling or you know whatever it might be that they could go along to those meetings and say, look, there's something that I can do to help. I can look at the documents. I can tell you what you should ask for or start to tell you. It might not be everything. It might not be completely comprehensive. But that could be crucial for a local organisation whose organisers' skills are elsewhere and they maybe don't have that sort of legal perspective on things. Um, and even... Um, introducing the organisation to the likes of Pills to say well, did you know there's this organisation who are thinking about climate justice who are working with other environmental NGOs and who might be able to point you in the right direction or put you in touch with someone that you could have a conversation with who has been down this path before can tell you a bit about what was involved from their perspective and it's all about making the connections it's all about the little bits of work it's not about bringing that case to the Supreme Court it's all the building blocks that are required before you would ever get there that are so important and that I think any lawyer who is qualified would be able to contribute to in some way. That's perfect because that moves it from the context that we're working in to the very concrete ways that we as a project are getting involved and are either supporting things that are currently going on in Northern Ireland or indeed creating new schemes and sessions and workshops um, as well. Our project was set up, the very idea was to help local human rights defenders to hold power to account. And when we're talking about environmental and, and climate action, there's two very powerful vested interests that come together. There's there's corporate interest and there's there's government. So, you know, solidarity, I think, is key in this because when we're talking about climate justice it's about um, finding climate solutions that also make the world a more equal place and that sounds like it's a, it's a very heavy lift for um, local organisers to be doing on their own and I think it's important and I'm glad that we have framed the work that we're doing as climate justice as opposed to you know simply just climate action and supporting that because it recognises the power dynamic as well at play between those who have bearing the brunt of our change climate and those who have caused the problem. 
Maria, I'm going to stick with you. If anybody has listened to Holding Our Breath, our special mini-series, you will know that we are the instructed solicitor in the diesel emissions case, um, focusing on clean air in Northern Ireland. And I know that there's um, a couple of court dates coming up that we might want to talk about. So um, can you just give us a bit of an update on where that case is at and what's going to be happening in February? Yeah, so um, for anyone who's listened to the mini-series, you will know and for those who haven't, please go back and listen. <laughs> and you will hear that we had um, the diesel emissions or clean air um, cases, we call it, part heard. Uh, the first day of hearing was the 21st of September 2023. And at that point, we thought one day would be enough. But it turned out that it didn't get finished on that day. And after a few attempts to get uh, a date to suit all parties, we've now landed um, on the 19th of February as being the second day of hearing when that judicial review challenge um, will complete in front of the judicial review judge. So nothing has happened in the meantime. We have not heard anything further from um, the Department for Infrastructure in relation to any plans to address the, the problem that is at the heart of this challenge, which is their failure to monitor diesel emissions in private cars which they have had a statutory obligation to do since, uh, well, at least 2006 when they did introduce it, but shortly thereafter stopped the test. So we will wait for that day and see what happens in court on the 19th of February. And obviously then the judge will take some time to consider um, all of the arguments before issuing a decision. The other case, just to update on at this stage in which Pills providing support is the challenge by the group No Gas Caverns alongside Friends of the Earth, which is an appeal to the Court of Appeal of the decision by the Judicial Review Court last summer in relation to um, the licenses that were granted to drill gas caverns into the seabed at Island McGee. So that Court of Appeal hearing is listed for two days on the 6th and 7th of February. Uh, skeleton arguments have been lodged with the court and um, we're basically awaiting that that hearing going ahead and we'll be watching very carefully to see what happens. Perfect and um, there's another date that's coming up in February and Kate I'm looking at you for this one because again part of what Pills was set up to do is to build capacity within the, the human rights NGO community here and we have a session that's coming up that I suppose in part is designed with environmental organisers in mind. Yes, we have an event on February 29th which we are putting together as part of the Equality Coalition which involves a wide range of groups from a civil society. The event is going to be around defamation law and the reason we're looking at that is our discussions earlier around environmental defenders were focused on criminal law, maybe a bit of property law and that type of thing, but very much more in the criminal space and the, and the threats that are directed through and from government. But another tool that business in particular is able to use, um, but also individuals, as we saw recently with the Jerry Kelly case, which I think may now go down in history and is certainly very quotable, Defamation law is being used and the threat of defamation litigation is being used against activists across the board. It's not just affecting environmental defenders, it's affecting women rights activists. 
asylum seeker activists, you know, it, it really is something that is being used to protect the reputations of large companies and corporations. And it's scary. It's scary if you get a letter land at your house threatening you with expensive civil litigation. So what we would like to do is put on a session that demystifies things a little in the hope of rebalancing power a bit so that people feel that they understand the process, that they understand that this may or may not be, and you can never tell, but it may not be a serious threat of litigation. It may simply be an attempt to shut you up and how to deal with that, how to manage it, but also how to be more strategic to avoid it in the first place so that when that letter lands, you know you've done all you can to protect yourselves, whether that's working with, say, journalists to look at it through a slightly different prism to, to make the most of people being able to carry out investigations and protect sources, or whether that's how you manage your social media accounts in terms of what's been put up there, how it's been dealt with, how you manage speaking to the public generally. So that's what we'd like the seminar to cover. Details will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. I've no idea if that's going to be before or after this podcast goes out. <laughs> so keep, keep an eye out on that. It really is open to anybody who's concerned about this and has seen this happen in their own activist work. Yep, please do keep an eye on our social media feeds and our website as well because we'll be posting details about that as I say we're doing that in partnership with the Equality Coalition and suppose moving from the community organizer side of things to the work that we're doing to support the legal profession locally um, we also have something that we're doing again in collaboration with the Law Society of Northern Ireland Hillary it's, I'm really excited about this because this is a very new departure for the PILS project, um, could you tell everybody a little bit about our Climate Justice CPD series? Yeah, so um, it's going to be a series of three sessions spanning over three months, so one session each month. And I suppose the way I think about it is over the weeks, we're gonna be zooming in a little bit more. So we're gonna start with an overview of an introduction to climate justice litigation. And then the second week is going to be looking at the legislative framework and lessons from climate justice cases in Northern Ireland. So we're getting more specific. In the third session, we're going to look at local environmental issues and corresponding legal action. And so I think that session is going to be really exciting because we're going to be bringing in some of PILS members who we've been working with and hopefully giving them the opportunity to speak with solicitors and also giving solicitors the opportunity to learn about what kinds of um, climate justice litigation cases there are that are ripe in Northern Ireland. And so we would encourage anyone who's interested to attend all three sessions because we've kind of designed them as a course that all fits together, um, but you are welcome to sign up for any of them individually too. And so you can register for those on the Law Society website. And just to say that's already live and people have been signing up already. So quick, go, go, go. That, I think, is a very nice way to start to give anybody else calls for action that we, that we have on this. We've talked an awful lot already about people getting involved and sort of fighting the fear of feeling that maybe this isn't the space that, that I usually work in, this isn't my area of expertise, I don't see myself as um, 
a climate lawyer or I don't see myself as an activist and it's about encouraging people that, that there is a role for everybody in this in this movement and, and in this work. From my point of view, sort of with my communications hat on, I think there's some really interesting work that is being done around framing and how we talk about climate action and how we talk about the people who are involved in that work and it's about questioning when you hear people being described in a certain way as being disruptive or or whatever it is I think it's about questioning that and questioning it for yourself but also calling it out if you hear it in conversations and sort of saying well really who who are the dangerous people is it the people who are sticking up for local communities and local places there was a really nice quote that I was trying to find in my notes Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, had said that climate activists are sometimes depicted as dangerous radicals, but the truly dangerous radicals are the countries that are increasing the production of fossil fuels. So I think it's about questioning that and thinking, who are the dangerous people really? And if you hear it in conversation, sort of calling that out. I'm not on commission for another podcast, but I'm listening to Drilled at the moment, and they're doing a special investigative feature on the real free speech threat, and it's very focused on that sort of chilling effect on environmental protectors. Again, not on commission, I'm not involved in it, just think it's a really good podcast, so um, to encourage people to listen to that too. So I just wanted to throw it open to everybody else if there was another message that you wanted to give people as we close. Just as you have sort of already alluded to, do you feel that you're worried about the climate and where it's heading? If you are, please get in touch because we want to hear from you. We want to hear if you can come and support some of our events. If you have a particular area of legal expertise that might be in some way related to this, be that planning law, be that environmental law, be that human rights or equality, because we are trying to make sure that those two areas come together in our quest to try and um, move towards achieving climate justice anywhere we can, be that a local issue, be that a bigger issue. So yes, we would love to hear from you if you would like to join our pro bono register. That's for lawyers who are solicitors, barristers, legal academics, um, or if you're from a solicitor firm or uh, any NGO and you would like to become a member of PILS to avail of our support and we have lots of areas in which we can support or ways in which we can support your organisation and that's all, you know, all that information is on our website so please go and have a look. We can guide you through that very simple membership application process and uh, yeah, if there's anything else you want to know, please do get in touch um, via the usual avenues. <laughs> and if you enjoyed this episode, then you'll love the interview that I did with two very special guests from Environmental Justice Network Ireland, Dr. Kira Brennan and Caitlin McElhannan, who are not only intelligent and strategic thinkers, but are great crack as well. And that interview complements a lot of the themes that came up in this episode. So make sure that you are subscribed to To Be Fair NI so that you don't miss out on that episode when it drops. I'm possibly too much of an elder millennial to say drops with a straight face. But anyway, you get the point. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and we'll talk to you soon. To Be Fair NI is a podcast series created by the Public Interest Litigation Support Project. Scripting and editing of this episode is by me, Emma Cassidy. Stay tuned for more conversations with the activists and allies using the law to change lives in Northern Ireland. Yeah.